This episode was brought to you by ReadyMag. ReadyMag is a design tool for creating outstanding websites without coding, from quick landing pages to complex editorials. With advanced animations, more than 5,000 free fonts, plus teamwork and analytics, ReadyMag empowers both independent creatives and companies to meet their goals for online representation. For more information, visit ReadyMag.com, where you'll find inspiring examples of web projects made by ReadyMag users. I think that the point of being an art director, creative director, design director, whatever we call them, is to be the agent for the customer, for the reader, to figure out ways of getting that person into the product. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Patrick Mitchell. I'm Deborah Bishop. Roger Black is a pioneer. His art direction of iconic print brands and high-profile redesigns, his early embrace of digital publishing technology, and his typographic innovations are hallmarks of a 50-year trailblazing career. He's refined his design mastery at publications ranging from Rolling Stone to Esquire to Newsweek to the New York Times Magazine. He's written books and started companies. He's worked for clients on every continent. And now, at 73, Black's focus has shifted to Type, more specifically Type Network, a font platform launched in 2016, where he serves as the company's chairman. Black's design legacy not only includes memorable makeovers, but also the fundamental need for an underlying reason and purpose behind them. Often sophisticated, always functional. Throw in his signature color palette, red, white, and of course black, and you're in business. All that said, Black preaches that the true DNA of a successful brand identity is its typography. We talked to Black about why he left home in the third grade, how an early blunder almost cost him his publishing career, what it felt like to follow in his mother's footsteps at the New York Times, what he thinks are the five best executed magazines of all time, and about why he's always on the move and where he's headed next. Oh, hi, Deb. What are you doing here? Hi, Patrick. I, I, it was on my calendar. Am I not supposed to be here? No, you absolutely are. I thought we would start this podcast by telling the listeners a little bit about how it came to be and, and why we're doing this. And so I had this, the first inkling to do this in the months leading up to the pandemic, not knowing the pandemic was also on the calendar. So I started by testing interviews with a couple of my mentors, and you'll actually get to hear those later in season one. And I thought it went really well, but then the pandemic hit and everything stopped. The original idea was that I was going to go out and meet these people in the field and uh, meet them where they are and, and you know have a little ambient noise and whatnot and make the place part of the whole experience. But the pandemic put the kibosh on that immediately. And so time went by and I... You know, we sort of all adapted, the country adapted to the pandemic and we all started working remotely. So I started figuring out a way to do this remotely. And even then I was like, still for some reason hesitant to get back into it. And one day I was walking in the woods and I was like, why am I waiting to do this? I know that I want to do it and I think it will be good. And I think people might want to hear it. And it occurred to me that I didn't want to do it alone. I wanted to have another voice in the room. And so I thought about who that would be, and I, I thought it should be a female voice so that there would be equal representation. And it didn't take me long to zero in on you. 
I've always admired you and the work that you do. And I thought your voice would be perfect for doing this podcast. And so one day I sent you a text saying, I have this wild idea and it involves you. It was borderline <laughs> creepy. I will say that. And, and you said something like, I love wild ideas. And so, yeah, we set up a Zoom call and we hadn't seen each other in years. And how, how could I not respond to that? <laughs> maybe you could talk about why this idea appealed to you. Well, firstly, I have to say that I was wildly flattered. I'm always looking for a new challenge. And so this seemed like a challenge. You were somebody, obviously, that I hadn't seen in years, but I've always admired your work. And we've always had, you know, fun, friendly banter. We're kind of similar in our sense of humor. And I thought, well, this could be a really fun adventure. And the other thought was, it always feels good to sort of give back to the design community. Agreed. I think that because I think we're all feeling it, this reality that we're living in, that this is the twilight of our magazine industry that we have, you know, we've both been working in for, I don't know, must be 30 years. There is a sense that this is the twilight and that it would be wonderful to be able to record the stories of these incredibly talented people that we've worked with, that we've known. You know, I think that magazines are going away. I'm not completely pessimistic that there aren't more interesting adventures on the horizon for most of us who, who have been in this business. But I think it's nice to talk about this industry and some of the amazing stories that these designers, illustrators, photographers, people in the magazine business have, and the impact that these people have had in the industry over all of these years. I think this serves as a, an archive and a way to preserve how we worked who we worked with, how influential this industry was to design as a whole, and how important it was in the sort of dialogue about the history. Agreed. 100%. You summed it up perfectly. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking my phone call that day. We'll talk more about this as the season rolls by, but now let's meet Roger Black. In his in-depth article about you for New York Magazine, the notorious Michael Wolf said of you, quote, The goal he seems to have set for himself is to design, practically speaking, all magazines, and to a large degree he has succeeded. Certainly he has designed more magazines than anybody else. He may have also made more money from magazines than any non-owner. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think it's fair to say that most people in our business would say that's a pretty accurate picture. Well, it's a fairly low bar at the end to say that I made more money than non-owners uh, because most of the owners went, that I know went broke. <laughs> well, so, but you've taken the magazine art director position to a place few of us have ever seen. Was that your plan? I think every art director, every designer, whether they spend a lot of time on it or not, looks at everything as a subject for redesign. You look at anything that comes, you know, and it could be architecture or industrial design, and you say, I could do better than that. I mean, nobody would be a designer if they didn't have a certain amount of ego. And some of us have a lot more ego than probably the customary share. And so... That's probably why I ended up doing so many magazines that I just thought they needed to be done. Uh, and I started this because, you know, I started a few too that 
didn't were, were, were fresh design. But the thing that I noticed very early on, well, fairly early on, I was probably in my early 30s, was that I wasn't really designing pages much anymore. I was designing systems for designing pages. And that was what I was most interested in. How do you set up the rules and formats? That's what we called it in those days, formats. And there would be a list of type, and then we'd do an illustration and photo style book and engage with photographers and illustrators, help hire staff photographers if we could convince them to do that. And that became really interesting to me. And then it, it became a business. People kept saying, could you do that? Could you do that? And then I kind of went nuts and started other studios because my language skills are typical American. That is to say... I get through English probably not that well, and the other languages are pretty blurry. I can read the Latin languages, but if you kind of came up and started talking Portuguese to me, I would have to use Google. Fortunately, Google has that automatic translation now, so you could <laughs> your phone could help you. Well, so along those lines, I want to ask you, what is a creative director? Because I think as important as your design work is, your true legacy is redefining the boundaries of where you can take a design career. For one thing, a creative director to me is a title, is an advertising title. I think that Milton, uh, Milton Glaser had it right when he tried to change the title to design director rather than art director. I mean, Milton, of course, was the greatest art director <laughs> in history in many respects and certainly had the most wonderful studio with Pushpin, but with Seymour. But he thought of the work that he was doing at, at New York Magazine was about more about design than art direction. And he liked that title. And it was slowly adapted uh, or adopted. And I used it in a number of places. But then quickly, I just became a consultant. And there were other people who were design directors. But I think that the point of being an art director, creative director, design director, whatever we call it, is to be the agent for the customer, for the reader, to figure out ways of getting that person into the product, as they now call it, uh, whether it's a website or an app or a magazine or a newspaper, whatever it is. And I only work with really text-based publications or products because that's what I know. If I knew more about video, I would certainly do that, but I don't know much. And the thing is that most designers and I've said this many times, think of themselves as artists. One way of defining it, I've always said most art directors are frustrated artists or frustrated photographers. And there's the, the typical stories that mom said, sent you to art school, but then she said, you got to get a job and maybe you should take some design courses while you're there. So they came into scene really being agents for photographers and illustrators. And the typography was thought of as art graphics, not as a conveyor of meaning. And my feeling was I'm, I didn't want to be an agent of the photographers and illustrators. In many cases, I was trying to instigate them, try to get them going, to try to get them excited. But I was also their adversary as well as their advocate. I wanted to challenge them. I wanted them to bend to the, whatever the publication needed as opposed to what they needed and also what the subject needed. But anyways, the, uh, the thought is that the role of an art director is really to get people into, the, into reading, uh, in my view. And that means you got to make it easy to read. You have to give clues. You have to give summaries. No one's going to read everything. You have to make it digestible and, and comprehensible and interesting. Like if, if somebody spends five minutes with your website or whatever it is, they should feel a little satisfaction. Oh, I got something out of that. That's cool. I'll go back. Because that's what you want. You want people, we want loyalty. And now, now, of course, they measure all of this. But we don't just want good session time. We want return. <laughs> We want subscriptions. 
And that's helped define, actually finally began to define what the digital publication business model is. It's subscriptions. And so we should be working on that. But do you consider yourself an artist? I'm not an artist. I can barely draw. You don't want to see anything I draw. It's pathetic. I was an okay photographer, but my best pictures were taken with completely manual cameras. And my brain just isn't fast enough to do all the calculation of, you know, shutter speed and <laughs> aperture opening and stuff. And all my good pictures were taken by sheer luck. <laughs> I would say that's probably a great photographer is one who has a lot of luck, knows when luck's going to happen. <laughs> So looking back, though, in the first grade, you made a blunder that might have ended an otherwise promising career in the media. Can you share that story? Ah, well, my dad uh, was an architect, and his office was at home. Uh, his name was J.J. Black. And he had a ditto machine, which old people know was a spirit duplicator that was used a lot in schools for teachers to run off assignments for tests and things. And it was an easier thing to use than a mimeograph, which involved a, a stencil that you had to cut, usually just you with a typewriter that didn't have the ribbon in it. But the ditto machine was like a, a heavy wax carbon back that you put on the back of a piece of paper, and then you could draw or type on it. And it imprinted on the back, fortunately, backwards. <laughs> so then you could put it on the cylinder, and little bits of alcohol would make it moist enough to make an impression on one sheet of paper without rubbing it all off. And of course, we did. Sometimes we used too much of this, quote, spirit. <laughs> And it would get kind of messy. And my dad had discovered that you could get different colors than that usual blue that they printed everything with. And it was very fun, kind of very milky, dusty looking crayon colors. And so you, by changing the batch, you could draw and get a color image. So I started using this in the first grade to print my own newspaper, which was called My Fun Reader. And it was uh, aimed at My Weekly Reader, which was, uh, it may even still exist. It, it existed for a long time and was just filled with the most boring path that you could imagine. But it, you know, it was made for first grade, second grade, third grade readers. I think they may have had different editions as you go. Oh, anyway, it was terrible. And I said, uh, we could do better than this. <laughs> so we tried. And then the thing you're alluding to is that I got in trouble because I started doing reporting and I had very little understanding of what was what other conventions and rules on this. You didn't have your own libel murder. <laughs> I had no advice at all on this, except for my friends who were helping me, Betty Legant and Johnny Ernest and some others. Anyway, so I found out that two doors down, the lady had become pregnant and I thought this was wonderful. There'd be another little kid. And I printed that and my mother went berserk and taught and I said, but it's great news. And, 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 and everyone knows about it. She said, yes, but she's not married. <laughs> and my father threatened to take the press away. Well, actually, he did. He closed it down, and then I never got it going again. <laughs> they shut down my fun reader. <laughs> I know. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to announce that this is our last day of publication. Yeah, I, we, did, we didn't even get that opportunity. I don't think it... <laughs> I don't think it was widely missed. I think. <laughs> a few people at James Bowie Elementary may have noticed it was gone. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com.
You once said, I pretty much had my life figured out for me by my mother very early on. I was not going to be around very much. And sure enough, you were shipped off at the age of 10. 10 from rural West Texas to a posh boarding school in Midtown Manhattan. You said your dad was a workaholic and your mom kept herself very busy too. Why do you think they chose this path for you? Well, my mother's reason was that she had... One of the things she organized in my hometown, Midland, Texas, was the PTA. And so uh, we I had three older sisters. and She got involved with, they were in school, and was an advocate for better schools in town and mobilized the other mothers, really. They were the main participants to push the school board in the city to spend more money and get better teachers. And she pretty well was able to select my grade school teachers, first, second, and third grade, fourth grade. And then she realized in the fourth grade that there was nobody in the fifth grade that she thought was any good. And she said this to me. I said, I don't know what we're going to do with you. And she said, in England, they go to boarding school at your age. So let's look around. So she took me to the New Mexico Military Institute, which, you know, remember Donald Trump went to a military boarding school. It was like that. And it was made to look a little like West Point. It was kind of gothic. It was in Roswell, New Mexico, which is actually a much nicer town than Midland and the kind of western end of the Permian Basin oil. I always wondered why people put Midland where it is. They could have had their office in San Angelo <laughs> or Roswell, which are both really interesting geographical places to live. Anyway, Midland is, is like living on the moon. It's flat. Anyway, so I said, I will not go to this school. And she said, what would you do? And I said, I would run away. <laughs> so I pretty much do what I would do. And my mother said, huh, that's not going to work. And just by coincidence, she went most summers to visit her mother and family in New Jersey. And she saw an ad in the New York Times Magazine, which I now I found the ad for St. Thomas Choir School, which was still accepting, this is in May, was still accepting applicants for that year, that September. And she called him up and we went in. She took me in and it was kind of cool. And I, I liked the idea of moving to New York. I always thought that my parents were thinking of moving back to New York. They, they met in New York and it moved to Texas when architecture came to a big stop in the early 30s. And they moved in 32 to West Texas. And they, they always talked about New York and they went, at, my mother always went every year. My dad often went. So I was like, yeah, but I'll go here. This looks great. <laughs> so Were you happened. scared? Not at all. I don't remember being scared for a minute. I should have probably been scared, but I was excited. I was happy. I felt like this is it. I'm ready. I get my, my suit, my top coat <laughs> and uh, head off to the airplane. So in fact, the, was it culture shock at all? I knew New York well enough. I think the culture shock was the change in environment, you know, from living at home with my family to a boarding school with 40 little kids, very carefully taken care of. It still is. It's an amazing school. It's um, at that point, we all sang in the choir. My voice didn't change until the summer I was 13. And so I made it all the way through school singing in the choir. But it was an amazing school. They had plenty of money and they had great teachers. And we they were also it, it still at uh, that church, St. Thomas Church, Fifth Avenue, uh, is their parishioners in the 19-teens and 20s were the people who lived on Fifth Avenue. Well, who were they? They were the super rich. So the church had plenty of money, beautiful building. And that's why my dad encouraged me to go because it's, he said, the worst thing that can happen to you would be just study every square inch of that building while you're there. <laughs> so I did. Were you homesick at all? 
Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, there were two teachers, the headmaster, Robert Porter and Gordon Clem, Mr. Clem, uh, who later became headmaster. One evening about the week three, I said, maybe you should stop by Mr. Porter's apartment after dinner. And I did. And they were both sitting there. And I, what I remember most about that encounter was that these men were sitting on either end of the sofa in two different chairs. And I was in the middle of the sofa. And I could. they were talking so quietly compared to my family that I could not hear either one of them. <laughs> it has to speak up. And they said, we're concerned because you were so, you know, you've been so upset. And I was probably as far away as any kid there. A lot of the boys there in my class were local. We had people whose parents were in London. And um, they took me through it. They got me to, it was like therapy. They took me through why I was homesick. And it was all empathy. It was all, do we understand? We were there once too. We get it. This is what we did. Rather than telling, you know, feeling like sorry for me. And I, it cured me. I was fine after that. Well, your posh education was just getting started. You went from St. Thomas to the prestigious Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, and then on to the equally prestigious University of Chicago. Princeton Review says, quote, students at U Chicago are both incredibly diverse and also consistently intellectual and quirky. Do you think of yourself as intellectual and quirky? Maybe more quirky. I must say that, well, after Deerfield, going to Chicago was stunning. They were all so much smarter than the average Deerfield kid. And they were all smart in different ways, too. So that was very interesting. I mean, they, some of them were math geniuses. I mean, some people it, were freshmen who knew more about astrophysics than I would ever learn. <laughs> and it was a little hard to keep up with. There was enormous expectation of the students spending essentially most of your life in the library doing research. And I wasn't very good at that. And in addition to which, I started doing publications. At Deerfield, I pretty much moved away from schoolwork to doing extracurricular and learned about design that summer before college. Uh, I had a, a summer intern job, which was called apprenticeship, and that shows you how old I am. <laughs> that cued me up in this... I, I, I went out, I tried out for the, the Maroon, the student newspaper, and became managing editor sophomore year and the editor the junior year. And that was my junior year in Chicago was 1968, which is an extremely good year to be a student editor. In Chicago. <laughs> in Chicago, yeah. In addition to which we had our own, in addition to the Democratic Convention and Mayor Daly and all of that, we had a great race ride. We had a sit-in and uh, pretty much a shutdown at the university. It was pretty crazy. What was your major? Political science, but I didn't, I never graduated. I, I, I left to start a magazine, so I never regretted. Wow. You think if you had finished that major, you might have chosen a different career where you definitely had No, I was doing that in order to become a, what I thought I wanted to be when I started selecting my major was a political writer, you know, correspondent journalist. Your dad was a noted architect in Midland, Texas, and your mother, Eleanor, once worked at the New York Times and at H.L. Mencken's The American Mercury, a very influential magazine from the 20s and 30s. What did they want you to be when you grew up? They actually said that's up to me, that my, my dad said you should not be an architect. He explained on any number of occasions how horrible it was to be an architect. <laughs> and if I had just said, like, did search and replace and said art director instead of architect, I never would have become an art director because it's the same thing. <laughs> it's like completely unresponsive clients, uh, very <laughs> difficult contractors and people you hire, very hard to staff, and uh, almost no appreciation. And almost as soon as you're done, they tear it down. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so yeah, if I had just said, of course, at that time when I was listening to him, I didn't think I was going to be a graphic designer. I thought I would be a writer. So, you know, I was saying that everyone th thinks that they're a frustrated artist. I'm a frustrated writer. <laughs> and that may explain why I'm more interested in typography than anything. I saw a quote that he once said to you, you work a short time on pieces of paper that will be duplicated by the thousands and then thrown away. <laughs> yeah. When I read that, I couldn't believe I'd wasted my entire yeah. career. Did they approve of your career choice? No. When I got to be the art director of Rolling Stone, my dad was thought that was okay. My mother didn't live for me to be the art director of the New York Times. And my dad said, I wish she had lived for that. It would have redeemed you in her view. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, there was something very nice about going back to New York in her, I mean, I worked in the same building that she worked in, the uh, 43rd Street building. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. A few years ago, you made several posts on Facebook of someone named Pinky. The photos and memories you shared were very raw and moving. Can you talk about her? Well, Pinky was my first spouse, because I guess how you have to say it these days. We met in L.A. I was My first job as a publication art director was in L.A. for something called L.A., a weekly tabloid, which didn't last very long, but set me up as a designer, learned a lot, met a lot of people. And I had, in 73, started a studio with Tom Ingalls and a fellow named Jim McKinsey called Type City. And I also was working under my own name as doing publication design, but Type City was going to do typography and make logos. We had something called Instant Logo, where you could, for $100 each, you could have as many as you wanted. And it almost killed us when the Grammys, not the Grammys, what was it? Uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, A&M Records, decided they were going to change their name. So he's going to call it Herb Alpert and the TJB. <laughs> so the art director of A&M called up and said, we need a, you know, you know that Instant Logos, can you send 20 over in the, by the morning? <laughs> And I, we said, I think we said, could we do 10? <laughs> Can't do 20, we're too busy. <laughs> I think maybe it was, they asked for 50 and we said, we settled on 20. And Tom and I sat up all night doing logos and it was really fun. And it was the most money we ever made in that company. <laughs> Anyways, so I was in LA wandering around and we had a young kid named Alan Ehrenberg came in to work as an assistant. And he, his girlfriend lived in this beautiful apartment building in Brentwood, the fancy part of Santa Monica. And uh, Alan, Alan came from a very prosperous family. And his mother had divorced and remarried the guy who owned the Philadelphia Eagles. And she had a house in the Malibu Colony. And Alan would invite people out there sometimes on the weekend. So we all went out and sat out on the beach and had a great time. And uh, so there was one very pretty young woman whose name is Clementine Van Dusen, and also from a prosperous old family. They used to live in the colony too. And we were lined up, and it was Sunday, and we had the newspapers. And I said, does anybody have a rolled reefer? 
and and they did, of course. It was 1974. Everyone had rolled reefers in those days. And then I realized I didn't have a match. I said, not have a match. <laughs> and I kept saying that. And it's kind of a life's breeze, kind of hard to hear. And people were paying much attention. And finally, Pinky got aggravated that I kept <laughs> wanting a match and nobody was helping. So she said, I'll go get you a match. And so she went into the house and came back with a match. And as she's stepping down, she hit a splinter on the stairs and screamed. Actually, it was kind of a shriek, <laughs> nearly blood-chilling shriek. And I ran over and said, now I feel guilty because she had hurt herself trying to get me matches so I could smoke pot. <laughs> and, you know, we started talking. And I, that evening, everyone was tired at the house. We thought we'd go into Malibu. The only restaurant we could think of was Alice's Restaurant on the pier. And everyone said, we hate it. You had to remember that we hate it. And it's expensive and we don't have any money. So let's just play it cool. <laughs> and so we went in and, you know, some of these were rich kids and some of them were people like me just, you know, trying to make a living and they hated it. <laughs> and I had spent my last $7 getting a shrimp cocktail and a margarita. That's, <laughs> that was my dinner. And they decided they were going to leave, just get the check and get the hell out of there and go to the, the corral or the stamp, no, the stampede, which is some horrible country western in West LA. And Pinky and I said, no, we're going to, we're just go back to the house. Don't worry about us. <laughs> and so we did. And we were walking back along Pacific Coast Highway. It was about a mile. And Pinky was limping because she, <laughs> she hit her foot. So I was trying to help her. And we complained about their spoiled rich kids. And that was the bonding thing. There's nothing more bonding than both hating the same kind of thing. <laughs> So a year later, we got married. The famous New York Times street fashion photographer, Bill Cunningham, looked at an old contact sheet of pictures of her and said, ah, Pinky. Pinky was the 70s. You as an art director of the hottest magazine on the planet, and Pinky as a fashion icon, must have been quite the power couple. Can you talk about those years in California? In California, that's not when we became the power couple. We were she was, she had become really interested in fashion, but it was not until New York and I got a little more, more money, we moved to Gramercy Park. Suddenly we were the toast of the town to be working at Rolling Stone. And then she met in London, a designer, Rachel Auburn, who now is pretty well known as a DJ, but was quite a big fashion designer in the kind of new romantic era. And she would get footlockers from London. And there were, you know, wool garments beautifully made, made, and you wondered what animal, which species was this thing made for? It looked like it had extra arms on it and stuff that she would wrap around her body. Anyways, Bill Cunningham loved all that, and we were at 59th and 5th, and Bill used to hang out at 57th and 5th at lunchtime because that's where all the ladies who lunch paraded by, uh, Jackie, Onassis, and every, everybody. You know, there was Lou Tess and Coat Basque. They're where they went. And so Pinky would just be walking down Fifth Avenue, maybe to go to Rolling Stone, and he would take her picture. So he had hundreds of pictures of her, you know, just on the contact sheets. Oh, every now that she she would get in the Times. So she it was definitely quite a scene. We uh, I'm reading Jan Winner's book, which is coming out this fall. I got an advanced copy from him. It's pretty amazing. He's very nice to me. But he describes how crazy we all were, including himself, <laughs> and the kind of... You know, we were running around New York at night in, in limos, you know, going to dance at Erie City. 54. You once said if she hadn't left you, you'd still be together today. Yeah. I typically, I don't leave people. <laughs> 
And we were very much in love. She had her own ideas about what she wanted, and she decided it was not to stay with me. So she moved to Beckley in Tortola for a while, and then ended up back in California. Speaking of Jan Wetter, you were at Rolling Stone in its heyday with Jan, Hunter Thompson, Annie Leibovitz, Cameron Crowe, Lester Bangs, Tom Wolfe. You were all around 25 at the same time and trying to run a business. How did a bunch of kids get a magazine out on a regular schedule, a bi-weekly schedule at that? Well, there were a lot of us, but Jan had gotten successful very fast and hired everyone he could think of, everyone he could find. He was a very good judge. He also had the wonderful human resource trick of getting rid of anybody that didn't work out very quick, which, you know, big companies have a hard time doing. So there was very little risk in hiring anybody because he'd fire them. And so it was everybody who was on trial all the time in a way. He was very indulgent to the writers, which is maybe why the magazine read so well. And he was a very good judge of talent, so he got all these kids in. But everyone thinks it's all kids. It wasn't all kids. You know, Tom Wolfe was doing some of his best work for Rolling Stone. And there were others. I mean, Jan Morris came in when I was there and did these amazing travel pieces that were, if we were lucky, we, we would assign a photographer. I remember she went to Panama and I got Nancy Moran to go down there. And she's, Nancy says, what, what do you need? Uh, and I said, I want to see in one picture, if you can possibly do it, how the Panama Canal works. People are vague on that. And sure enough, she got on top of a mountain and took this giant picture, which we ran as double truck, that showed exactly that there's the lake where they're all light. These freighters are lined up. And then one ship is high and one ship is low. It's like, thank you. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Good. I mean, she was, is, uh, she's still around, but she's a great photojournalist. But uh, yeah, there was, that was the other thing. So we had pretty much anybody would work, you just call them up and they would say, okay. And we had enough money so we could pay reasonable. I mean, it was not like the great era when covers got paid in the 40s, a cover would be paid $10,000 to the artist, but we would pay 1500 or something in the 70s. So everybody, you know, Milton Glaser, virtually every known illustrator at that time, uh, Danny Mafia did some wonderful things for us, Jim McMullen, Phil Hayes, everybody. And then, of course, the photographers, Jan hired Hero, who just died in the last year, uh, one of the great photographers of the 20th century, in my view, to do stuff he hadn't really done much of, which was portraits. But he he originally originally was hired to do the space shuttle. It's kind of bizarre. He did the famous picture of the space suits on a clothes rack like it was 7th Avenue. It took me 20 years to realize that was a setup. (laughs) And it was, you know, because he did a full, unlike most of these photojournalists, unlike photojournalists, because he was not really a photojournalist, he did an advanced trip to the whole shuttle program, Cape Kennedy and Houston and California and uh, Huntsville, I guess. I remember we got the bill for that. It was two first-class tickets and fancy cars and, you know, four-star, five-star hotels. And I gave it to you, and it's like thousands of dollars. (laughs) And he said, yeah, pay. <laughs> that's how we were. So that's, that was the thing. We were, we were doing very interesting things and people would work for us. So we got everybody. It was fun. In your blog, you tell a very funny story about a stop the presses moment that I wish was at Rolling Stone, but I think it was at LA Magazine. Can you share that? Oh, that was uh, Bill Cardozo. That, the famous Bill Cardozo line. Cardozo uh, was the inventor of the phrase gonzo journalism. And he's the guy who introduced me to Hunter Thompson in 72 at his apartment in West Hollywood. Anyway, he had done the Boston Globe magazine and then had retired to the Canary Islands and ran a jazz bar for a number of years. Got bored with that and came back and got this job with uh, Carl Fleming and Bob Sherrill, uh, the good Bob Sherrill at LA. Anyway, uh, we it was, this, it was 1972. So <laughs> 
At one moment, he comes running back to the art department, yelling, stop the press. And we all like look up. It's like, what? And he says, I lost the hash pipe. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to help him. It's a funny story, but it says a lot about those times. And even at a business like a magazine, things and people get out of hand, including you. You told me about an instance in New York shortly after moving there when you experienced a sort of intervention and were given an ultimatum. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the, the New York Times confronted me because I was really drinking much more than I was doing drugs at that point. Basically, I think I'm, I'm one of these people who can attest that marijuana, if it becomes a daily habit, leads to other addictions. And it did in my case with cocaine. And then that led to alcohol because cocaine and alcohol go very nicely together. What, you know, cocaine tunes you up if you've drunk too much and alcohol calms you down if you've taken too much cocaine. And that spiral, I mean, this is what happened to Hunter Thompson. This is that spiral becomes very difficult to handle because you're addicted to both. And at one point, it became clear to the to, uh, to Lou Silverstein, my boss at the New York Times, that I was not going to make it if they didn't do something. So they had an employee assistance program, which, you know, we're talking about 1982. So you got to admire them first for hiring me, they sort of knowing that I had a problem. But then you have to admire them for like putting up with me and trying to help. So I started going to this EAP guy at, who was became essentially my first sponsor. And they with Pinky and, and other friends, they did an intervention and said, I mean, basically the choice was, you know, you're, you're, you're not following the program. You're not, you can either go to rehab or you could leave the premises and, you know, now, you know, don't pack your bag, just leave, get out of here. And it didn't take me very long to say, okay, you're right. Uh, I'll go to rehab. And uh, I would say 30 seconds <laughs> because I didn't, you know, I passed the denial period <laughs> at that point. And, and realized that I had a problem and I could die. I think that's the way that people get over addiction is to realize that you're going to die if you don't do something. And that's the, also the message. It's true. You will, you know, it, and I know, I'm going to say dozens of people who didn't, didn't take that opportunity to stop. And I, the only thing I would say that we really need to do is do more education about that. People don't understand that drugs do lead to death and or that there's help. And if they did you know, more people get into the program. I mean, it's pretty amazing how, I mean, this is now, this is going to be 40-year mark, uh, as they say, God willing, in October. What was that time like when you came back from rehab? I initially thought that I would never be able to think again <laughs> because I think a lot of people who do a lot of drugs and alcohol think that, that that's helping them. And I quickly realized it was actually not helping. <laughs> helping you in, in terms of Creativity, yeah. I mean, that's it. Actually, was a crutch. All addiction is like that. You're addicted to the substance. You're not. There isn't a reason for it. You know, if you did a log of all the times you did drugs or alcohol or smoke cigarettes or whatever it is you're addicted to, there would not be a pattern. It's like you do it when you're happy. You do it when you're sad. You do it when you're tired. You do it when you wake up. <laughs> it's because you're addicted. It isn't because it's an antidote to anything. You just think that. That's an excuse. We'll be right back. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. After Rolling Stone, you kind of began a grand tour of the magazine business that included stops at New York, 
New West, Los Angeles, The New York Times, and Times Magazine, Newsweek, Smart, and Esquire, all in the span of about 10 to 12 years. What was the driver behind so many stops? Well, I was doing redesign, basically. But the thing is that I quit uh, Rolling Stone without really knowing what I was going to do next. But very quickly, Joe Armstrong, who had also quit Rolling Stone as publisher, had gone to work for Rupert Murdoch, who had bought New York and New West. Called me up and said, do you want to do New West? And I said, no. And he said, yeah, but it, you're probably going to get through New York too, but we have an art director there and it hasn't been worked out yet. And I said, all right, but you have to pay me a lot more than I'm making now because that's one of the reasons I quit Rolling Stone. Jan puts in his book that the reason I quit Rolling Stone is exactly the reason. And I asked him, how did you get that story right? I mean, people's memories are nearly not that good. He said, don't you remember? I interviewed you. <laughs> but it was really nice of him to tell that story because it's sort of on himself. Because I told, I said, I would stay in Rolling Stone if he paid me a lot more money or if he came back and acted as editor and stopped all this nonsense of being a celebrity and rich person. And he declined. <laughs> so I left, but then I didn't know what I was going to do, but then but Joe called, ended up moving to LA, which I kind of liked. And then he immediately said, could you come back for a little bit of meet Rupert and talk about the New York Post? So like month two, I flew back and met Rupert Murdoch and did a redesign of the New York Post in my spare time, which was really fun. And Rupert wanted to do something. It was sort of like Tina Brown. It was a high-low thing. They're going to take the York Post, which still had famous names and a great, some great reporters. But he wanted tabloid sales, so he bolted, you know, gossip on there. That that's essentially Tatler Vanity Fair. And um, so I did this very juicy tabloid design that I thought I thought was juicy, and then and had quite fun with Rupert and got to know him and Anna, who was his uh, his second wife, who was the those people from News Corp, the Murdochs are her children. And um, he says, you know, it's really fun, Roger, but we decided, I have a lot more respect in town if we took the high-low approach, but it's going to be so much easier just to do low. <laughs> During that plan, Roger, what was your favorite job? The New York Times. I mean, what happened was during that period, the Times hired me to do the magazine. And then after they made me clean up my act, they pretty much said they were grooming me to be the new art director because uh, Lou Silverstein, I didn't understand there was a mandatory retirement age and that Lou was reaching it and they were going to have to find somebody else. And it, it turned out he wanted me to do it. So he made me the senior art director where I padded around following him through the newsroom and doing all this other stuff. And then then he did retire. They made me the art director. But it was very frustrating. And then I realized that A. Rosenthal, who was my mentor, boss, he was going to have to retire. And they were going to bring a more typical non-visual person to be the editor. Who was the best editorial partner that you've ever worked with? Well, I had, I mean, Jan is clearly probably at the top. I would, uh, Terry McDonald, we, we worked in a number of places, including Smart. Yeah, there, that would be the short list. <laughs> but I, I, I can't say that I've really met, I mean, I... All the successful magazines had good editors. If they're really ugly magazines that I've done, they're, they're bad editors. I blame them. <laughs> Can you name as a reader, and not including former clients, what you would say are the five best executed magazines ever? Well, I'm glad you asked me. You gave me a hint that you're going to ask that question because I would have, it probably changes every time you ask. But I think top of my list has to be Esquire under Sam Antipit. Because Sam Antipas is the one who made me understand that there was a job for art directors, magazine art Because I worked with him on Print Project America in 1970. 
And George Lois did the covers. Everyone thinks it's George Lois's era. He, he never did the inside, but he was a genius on doing the covers. That was uh, Harold Hayes was the editor. And then uh, from my childhood, only vaguely aware of it as a child, was Sipe Pinellas at Charm. Charm, I think, is one of the great magazines of all time. It was stupidly named because it was, a, it was a magazine for working women in the early 50s and still looks fabulous. It was beautifully art directed. The photography was flabbergasting. Of course, the idea that a woman would wear something like that to work today is, <laughs> you know, they were gorgeous at the factory. <laughs> and then I would say probably show, Henry Wolf's show, because I subscribed. I was a subscriber at St. Thomas Aquarius and also a patron to the Gallery of Modern Art, which was Edward Durrell Stone's building for Huntington Harbor to own show. But uh, I love that magazine. It was like really surprising. It's amazingly lavish. I don't know how I saved enough money to subscribe. Uh, and then I would probably say The American Mercury itself, which had no art, but great stories and great type and very easy to read and uh, beautifully edited. And it had a classic with the front of the book, uh, Mencken, H. John Mencken, who was one of the genius editors of all time. And he created, I mean, it's 1924, a year before The New Yorker ever started. The New Yorker essentially just was cribbing The American Mercury when they started. And their big donation to the mankind was the cartoons. But the Mercury didn't have squibs. The art director was Elmer Adler. Adler invented this whole game before our, the people who taught us were brief and port. And the American Mercury was Garamond, ATF Garamond, that Fred Gowdy designed. Now people say it's not really Garamond. Okay, fine. It's very, very good letterpress text face, but stylish. So it's perfect for this magazine. And it was set up perfectly with the right widths and all that. And it was printed by uh, the Haddon Craftsman in Camden, beautifully printed. Number five would be New York under Walter Bernard. And that was typographically not, I, I think the, the, the kind of evocation that they've done now at New York Magazine with the Egyptian bowl contents is their kind of show face is much more typographically interesting than it was under Walter. Of course, you have to remember how bad the printing was in those days, but his art direction, his sense of, of pacing and all that in a weekly magazine is fantastic. And it created the business. Suddenly, everybody wanted to, I, I think Rolling Stone and New York, which came out the same year, 67, created a demand for, for art directors. And that was how I got started because I didn't have any experience. I was a kid, but they didn't have any experience either. So they hired me. It's great. There weren't really art directors before that. Yeah. Not like we have, not like we had in the 20th century. No. Was Roger Black design just the next logical step on your career path? Yeah. Because I, I, once I realized what I was doing was, was redesigned in formats, I was not, I wasn't loving the art director part. I enjoyed it. But as soon as possible, I got other better people to do the work like great photo editors and associate art directors who were really art directors who had that Rolodex, you know, we had at Rolling Stone. There were four associate art directors at New York working with me and then two or three assistant art directors. And then we had a paste up team that include people like Robert Rains, who became art director of Book of the Month Club at AOL and uh, April Silver became art director of Esquire. She was a paste up person at Rolling Stone. And uh, yeah, we had an amazing backfield. Plus the whole photo desk with, you know, Carol Malarkey's photo editor, Susan Vermeisen, his associate. Actually, you know, before we get into Roger Black, Inc., I wanted to share this quote I read, and I'm not sure the source, but it says, quote, Roger draws a monthly consulting retainer as the design director at Esquire and as the grand design consultant to the Hearst Company. That's when I met you. The idea is that Roger will become a kind of Alexander Lieberman at Hearst, except that Roger will be free to work from his Hearst offices on his many other non-Hearst projects and assignments. Was that the beginning of Roger Black, Inc.? 
No, actually, Roger Black Inc. was incorporated in 1982. When I quit New York, I freelanced for a year before the New York Times hired me. And I had I had a really good time. We did some funky publication work, but I also did uh, Martha Stewart's first book, Entertaining. And my favorite magazine work was for Don Welsh, another ex-Rolling Stone person, who had Welsh publishing, which did children's kind of franchise magazines. And the one I did was Muppet, my favorite. Muppet Magazine was, you know, at that time they had the Muppet Mansion. And I got to work directly with Muppet people. And the whole idea was to make a, a magazine that looked like the Muppets were putting it out, like their TV show. And so Miss Picky had the advice column, for example, my favorite. And it was all, Mupp, you know, real Muppet art. And then celebrities. We had such like the TV show. Robert Williams was the first cover. That was fun. Well, was this idea of becoming the Alexander Lieberman of Hearst something that was discussed there? Well, they never used that phrase because they hated everything to do with Condé Nast, so that wouldn't be a thing. That wouldn't be their their admitted model. But they wanted design at a, at a higher level than they had. And you know, people forget Hearst. We were in a first bought Cosmopolitan. He liked magazines. The only magazine he ever started himself was Motor, a magazine for chauffeurs and mechanics, because he thought they needed some information. <laughs> but Clay's Berber, another ex-Rolling Stone ad salesperson, had become the head of Hearst Magazines. And people forget that there were quite a few good art directors and visual-minded editors. I think of John Mac Carter, uh, who had become a head of magazine development. And uh, he was still editor of Good Housekeeping and was the old Hearst building, which is now just the base for the Hearst and on the top floor was the Good Housekeeping Institute with John Mac Carter and his test kitchens in a quite an elaborate dining room. So, I mean, there were a lot of people at Hearst who cared about these things. Helen Gurley Brown, I will mention. But some of the magazines were getting a little long in the tooth in terms of design. And they wanted to get more commercial. They wanted to compete more with Condé Nast at that level. So I came in to do Esquire, but the idea was that I would be kind of consulting art director for every, everything. So I slowly redid, you know, worked on Town and Country a little bit, did um, House Beautiful. What, I mean, just consulted. And I remember Deems, after the whole thing, and we had waited and talked to the, the editor who had been there a long time, got the redesign approved and moved on. I said, so, so Dick, what did you think? And he says, well, it's the old man who used to say, you can light your cigar with a $100 bill, but it's still just a smoke. <laughs> Squash. <laughs> yeah. So how long did that last at Hearst? It was maybe four years. So yeah, it was really all the way through the 90s. I, I had something to do. I got out of Escar pretty quick. And that was because Gosner showed up. Ha ha. Gosner has become a very sweet guy in his old age. I hope that happens to me. But he was doing the same thing, trying to save Terry McDonald and the editor and run it into the ground as a business. Although it was really interesting, Mac. It's really fun. And uh, Rhonda Rubenstein had become the art director, was really doing all the work. One of the proudest things in my career is that Almost all my successors at magazines were women. Mary Shannon was my successor at Rolling Stone. Patricia Bradbury was my successor at, at Newsweek. Uh, Diana Lervario was my successor at New York Times Magazine. It goes on. And uh, why was that? Well, because all these great art directors I would hire. <laughs> and then I would get the hell out of the way. I'm just slowing you down. We'll be right back.
I read an article where you said back in the mid-90s, don't have a lot of text. Nobody reads anything anymore. The only person you can count on to read every word of what you've written is your mother. You are at the forefront of putting real editorial online. How do you think it's going now? Well, it's a complete mix. It goes all the way from very, very high end to nothing. I don't know where that quote came from, but my feeling has always been, you don't want to give the impression of a lot of text because people would be turned off. If you take a look at the New York Times Magazine today, which wins all the awards, they don't make any concession to the reader. There's like a lot of sometimes very exuberant and wonderful design work or artwork typography. And then there's the text just like layered in. And then just like we had to do in the, in the 80s, it, it jumps to the back. It's like, really? Why is anyone doing jumps when there are no ads? I don't understand that. But the end result is that you look at the raw text, you say, my God, there's a lot to read. And it looks difficult. I'm not going to read that. So the job is to entice them into it, to give them enough information so that if they don't read it, they still enjoy the article. And that includes the writing. You know, you have quotes or you have big, big chapter openings and good chapter titles, great captions. Can you explain Apple News to me? I mean, they've hired away some of the greatest talent in the magazine business, and yet you'd be hard pressed to see any of that creativity in their editorial output. Well, I only have one Apple thing left, which is an iPad, because I, I find the Apple environment suffocating. And I guess that's what happened to those guys. <laughs> they got inside that giant dome and there's not enough oxygen in there. Despite all the plants, trees, things, <laughs> you'd think that they would be making oxygen at Apple. But it's very interesting to compare Google's version of that, which is called Discover, which is an adjunct of the Chrome browser and also appears in Android. Uh, you just kind of swipe in the left and it shows up and it refreshes. So it follows, of course, like everything Google, and I think Apple News is the same way. It follows what you're interested in. So that it creates a little bubble. Google does a little more random, interesting stuff which is my definition of something that's good about newspapers. But Apple, I, you know, I don't read it enough so that they know my preferences very well. But I'm very frustrated when I hit a link in Apple, it goes to a subscription page very often. I'm thinking about their presentation of newsstand magazines, which all mirror each other identically. Yeah. You'll see the magazine's logo, but then every layout of every story of every magazine is exactly the same. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me of the ill-fated iPad experiment at Condé Nast, where they, you know, half of it was sort of PDF magazines, but the other half was the templated magazines. And one of the worst things that's happened in this modern era is the kind of standardization of formats in groups. So Hearst Magazine took my design of the Houston Chronicle, a multiple design effort at the San Francisco Chronicle that included Jim Parkinson's amazing fonts and whoever did uh, the San Antonio Express News and just gutted the local designs and replaced them all with a kind of well-intended design that is just generic. And then Gannett, whatever it's called now, uh, they have pubs so that, you know, one whole section of newspapers, which don't necessarily relate to each other, all look alike. And then you move into the web and you get all these templates from the various platforms that, you know, WordPress or, or whatever, and they all start looking like, I mean, the, the Russians figured this out when they were gaming the last election because they could put a nice WordPress newspaper template and make up a newspaper and people would think it was real. <laughs> so it looked like the one they got. Blame it all on the Russians. Yeah, the Gannett newspapers, regardless of what city, they all look like USA Today. Well, yeah, and it didn't used to be the case. I've been wondering, uh, maybe you can shed some light on this. How do old brands like Time, Vanity Fair, Vogue, The Atlantic retain their brand identity in the digital world? What should they be making? I would have to say that the number one thing is language. 
in the sense that the art directors are working on a kind of voice and person, a visual voice and personality for the magazine. The editors also wanted to create a style, editorial style. Now, in the old days, they were dictatorial about that. In the case of H.L. Mencken, he simply rewrote everything so it until it sounded like he wanted it. Uh, the New Yorker brought together a group of people who were social friends and were admirers from across, you know, who were just mailing in a copy, but they all loved that style. And so the New Yorker sounded like the New Yorker all the time. When Henry Lou started tying, they rewrote everything and made up words. And, and the whole thing became very punchy. You know, there were papers like the New York World, uh, and then later the Herald Tribune, that had quite a lot of style personality. You knew what a, a world story had to have a certain tone. Uh, the New York Times have ignored all that. It was boring. It was all hell for her. But I think that starts, you know, the way the headlines are written and, and all of that stuff is essential. Beyond that, it's typography. How do they do it? The answer is always type. Just <laughs> fill You can fill out the rest of your questions very easily. The problem is they're all using Google. All these newspapers are using Google fonts. And I'm not a huge critic of Google fonts. It's amazing what they did. They brought you know 99% of websites into fonts. But I think they developed their library because they didn't want to spend a lot of money on licensing. They developed the library very quickly. So they're not all that great. You once said when talking about one of your digital publishing startups, the first to contact us were editors and publishers outside the big groups or refugees from them. These publishers and wannabes are the future of publications. They get social media, crowdsourcing, iterative live content, and the idea that readers increasingly want to participate in a conversation rather than just sit there and read. That's several years old, but it is where new indie magazines, digital and print, are right now. And they're, they're doing, maybe in a lot of cases, better than the big publishers. Will it work? Is that the future? I think it is the future. I think it's the present. There's been an enormous emergence of bloggers. Like my current favorite blogger is an old-time reporter, writer, uh, Lucian Truscott, who's like live covering the, the invasion of Ukraine. And he has an amazing background, but he's also quite a pungent writer. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday. Who are the Hunter Thompsons or Tom Wolfs of today? There are not that many people who really can deliver very pungent ideas and pungent prose at the same. And I, Lucian is one. And what is he on Substack or something like that? Yeah, and he, but he has his own. You subscribe. Well, you can subscribe. I mean, he, you can read it for free. And he sends out a newsletter, which he's constantly updating. And it's, it's very personal, but he really thinks about it and writes, writes well. So he's a micro-magazine. Yeah. Now, he's not designed. Uh, he took a Substack format, I guess. It's okay. The things that I read now tend to be in print too. And that's what's interesting. There is, that print still exists, is interesting. And they tend to be the successful things. I think it, all of these are either razor focus. Like, do you see Arc Daily? That's not bad looking and it's really interesting. And I don't know how they produce all this content. It's a micro focus. You know, it's a particular kind of modern alternative architecture with a big green, big whiff of green to it. There's another one, Dizine. That's another design architecture. Yep. Really good. Yeah. Now, they don't have print. But then some local things like the Big Ben Sentinel, which is Marfa, Texas, is a website and print. And they put out a weekly. It's boring as all hell looking, but it's really good. And it's, it's surviving. They Don't they have their own cafe too? They have a very nice cafe. I recommend it. That's the business model? That's what Monocle's doing in a way. I think, yeah. I think you have to have a cafe. What, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you? There has been one remarkably consistent theme in the Roger Black story, <laughs> and that is movement. 
this is one incredibly integrated work-life philosophy, movement in life, movement in work. Which one is the driver here? I think it's the same thing. I don't think that there's a priority. Your work is your life, at least for me. And everything that you do that you don't think is working helps your brain work when the time comes. So that includes food or or talking to people or getting around. Uh, I think the coronavirus lockdown has been debilitating for people who like to move and in, worse in some places than others. Nevertheless, I have been able to get around a little bit and I spend basically go out to Texas for a period of time to the ranch, which I'm getting ready to do in April and try to spend a, a month there and then do some side trips, uh, get people show up. And, you know, I think that, you know, in New York, I was able to have an interesting lunch essentially every day. That was my idea. That lunch should be a, an important part of your day, your big meal, and it should last at least two hours. And you go to a great restaurant. What's wrong with that? And then that kind of more to doing lunch parties at home rather than dinner parties, inviting three or four people to lunch and have a topic and never recording that. And that was fun. So I'm looking forward to that kind of reconvening a little bit. But Foster, my husband and I, are both talking about kind of a major change. Get the hell out of Florida and restart a European pattern. And we're going to go to Norway and to London and take a look. And so I could imagine living in the countryside of near Oslo and then also at the ranch. So no intention to slow down. Yeah. I, my, da my dad, who taught me a lot, uh, one of the things he taught me, I mean, this is by example, was just keep working if you enjoy work. If work and life are the same thing and you like your work, why would you stop? So he continued working every day until he was 80. And then he quit and he only lasted a couple more years. So I figure I got to go till night. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made professionally? Well, I don't think it's a one mistake. I'm not sure that I could point to it, mainly because I'm the kind of person who always has a reason, can justify anything and argue himself into whatever reality that he wants. But I would say that there are patterns or be kind of syndromes that I wish I didn't have. So one of those is relative volatility. I mean, this was much worse when I was drinking. But I still get angry. I still, I push people very hard. You know, and part of that is the way that's what my parents did. Uh, that's what all my great bosses did. Abe or Lou Silverstein, beyond winner. They didn't cut any corners in terms of, you know, making something polite when they wanted to tell you something. And sometimes they would use, you know, Jan would swear and everything else. But I don't think they would have gotten the results. So I kind of got some bad habits that way. And nowadays, you know, I couldn't work in a big corporation because I'd get canceled out pretty quick because I would tell them. So it's very good to own your own company. Uh, they then say, well, he's the owner. <laughs> you know? And I'm not working in, you know, I don't have any direct reports, so there's nobody I get really mad at. But I think that would be my worst problem, being too hard or what would now be regarded as abusive behavior, which uh, doesn't go over very well. It's not effective. In the old days, that's just the way everything was. How would you want to be remembered? Well, I think it gets back to process. I think that it isn't the, the layout, it's the system, it, it's the code, it's the what's moving forward, what's the logic of the typography or the design structure. And I think that what I'd like to be remembered for is thinking about the way things move, not the way things are page by page. And that makes that's why I was able to go into the web so quickly, is that it's saying, oh, yeah, we can move. And I think most people had trouble uh, because they defined everything in terms of a particular f shape of a page, you know, eight by 11 or whatever it was. And that's not, 
you know, since I'm not a painter or not an artist, I never thought of it as a canvas. I always thought about it as what is the impact you're making? How are how are you interacting with whoever is getting it, reading it, or using it? And that's what I like to be remembered for. Thinking about it as a process and not as a as a layout. Someone like, say, Jeff Bezos comes to you and says, Roger, it's 2022. Money is no object, obviously, for him. I want you to create a print magazine for our times, the magazine of your dream. What would you make and who would you make it with? That's fun. Well, and I love the idea of Bezos because if he can spend $300 million on a boat, he is being very, very productive with the Washington Post by backing the Washington Post. And, and people said, oh, the Washington Post began to decline. Their subscriptions are off. I don't know if that's true. They just hired another 50 people in the newsroom. So I mean, it doesn't have the level that the New York Times has, but it's still pretty fantastic. And that's thanks to Bezos. But you know what I would like to do would be to reinvent Life magazine. The weekly Life had three photo stories, usually one not hard news or current, one of personality, and then one some kind of travelogue. I'd like to pair that with three essays and make a printed edition, and maybe it's not weekly, but then have a front of the book that is all short takes and a back of the book that's got reviews and cultural items, just like a classic magazine. And I bet you, if you got, I mean, the thing is, you would have to get great artists and photographers and great writers to do it. But I think you could find them in it. There are really hundreds of people who I would talk to about doing that if I had the money. Who would you hire as the editor? Yourself? No, no, no. I wouldn't hire me to do anything. I'm past that. <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm not... Living or dead? I think all of us from my group are maybe a little long in the tooth for this, but I'm not sure. You know, I haven't gotten that far in terms of... Who would be? Do you see Susan Zakin's crazy Journal of the Plague? She's put this together with no money, and she just kind of grabs art. I don't think that, <laughs> not sure if she's cleared everything that she runs, but it's still really entertaining uh, reading and very current. You know, I don't know if she would be the person, but somebody like that, somebody who's out there doing really interesting stuff, probably from the digital side. You know, you could basically, I think a printed dish is sort of a snapshot. It's, it's like a, if you do it, a 20 minute cut of a movie, that's what the magazine is. But there's still a movie going on, except there's no ending, it just keeps going. These days, Roger Black's main focus is his work with Type Network, a font platform whose mission is to find the best designers, to support and publish their work, and to provide their clients and community with high-quality original typefaces. For more information, visit typenetwork.com. Follow Roger on Twitter at Roger Black, or visit his website and blog at rogerblack.com. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co, or follow us on Instagram at printisdeadpod. Please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. Consider switching to digital with ReadyMag, the design tool that helps create websites without coding. ReadyMag's WYSIWYG attitude gives you full control over the result. Just drag whatever you want on the page, customize, and hit publish. Or take more time to fine-tune your project with advanced typography, complex animations, integrated analytics, draggable objects, shadows, custom cursors. The possibilities are endless. The first 50 new users to take promo code PRINTISDEAD get a 50% discount to ReadyMag's studio plan. Learn more at ReadyMag.com.